Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I had become a journalist because I wanted to tell the story of my country and of my region to a wider audience, to precisely bring more nuance to the storytelling, to bring all the voices and the empathy that is required. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter most in politics, arts and society. I'm Steve Bloomfield, Deputy Editor of Prospect Magazine. Before we properly begin this week's episode, a quick announcement. As the UK-wide lockdown begins, we've taken down the paywall on our website. That means you can read all the essays, interviews and reviews we've published in Prospect's 25-year history, all from the comfort of your home. Plus, you don't have to fill out any forms or hand over your email address. Just go to our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk, to get started. Now, back to the episode. This week, we'll be talking to the journalist Kim Gattas, on the historic rivalry that has transformed the Middle East. Why is the year 1979 so pivotal to understanding the region and what are the roots to the conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia that are shaping not only the Middle East but the world beyond? Before I talk to Kim, I'm here with Prospect's Head of Digital, Stephanie Boland. Steph, hello. Hi, Steve. Hello. So we're doing this again from remote locations, uh, me in one part of London, you in another. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. You can see my oven behind me. We're um, cooking all of our meals, so our electricity bill is about to leap up. But apart from that, bearing up fine here, really. How about you? Yeah, we're all right. We're, we're fine. We've got a, uh, so it's, it's me, um, my wife and a three-year-old and we are adjusting to lockdown, the three of us. All right. We're getting there. A bit of homeschooling, a lot of uh, trying to play outside and keeping things as normal as possible, which is, uh, yeah, so far, so far going all right. Uh, I mentioned at the top, Steph, that we've taken down the paywall. Um, why is it we've done that? The idea is essentially what we're doing at Prospect is trying to bring a little bit of public service journalism in. Um, We're running lots of content around coronavirus, expert analysis, scientists, economists, the kind of people whose word you really want to be hearing right now. And because ordinarily we have a paywall on our site, that stuff would have been available to you. You can always read three stories without doing anything, even giving an email address on Prospect. 
but because there is so much information coming out so quickly and that expert analysis is so clearly needed right now, we've dropped it entirely. It also means if you are at home and you have a teenager, you need to find some essays for to um, to bulk up your homeschooling. Or even if you just go, I really need to read about something that isn't coronavirus, our entire archive is free. So you can keep yourself educated and entertained as well as up to date. Yeah, so far I've already reread the entire Clive James archive, including his, uh, his, his wonderful review of, uh, of Dan Brown. And yeah, I, I urge you all to do the same. Um, we're, I think we're probably going to keep the prospect interview, this podcast, mainly focused on non-coronavirus things. So you look at the schedule we've got so far. And we're quite fortunate that we've, we've stored up quite a lot of interviews in the vault, haven't we? Yeah, I was going to say, we have started recording remotely now, but I think you recorded this one with Kim in person. And I certainly remember you being really excited when you were prepping for it in the office, back when you and I used to sit (laughs) opposite each other every day, not even the regulated two metres apart. Um, What was it about her that made you really keen to, to do this interview? So Kim's written a fantastic new book called Black Wave, which is all about... Um, well, it starts in 1979. It focuses on sort of three big events that happened in the Middle East in 1979: uh, the fall of the Shah in Iran, the siege of uh, the Grand Mosque in Mecca um, in Saudi Arabia, and also the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Um, and she basically argues that 1979 was the moment where the region changed, where uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia started sort of moving away from each other. Um, about the rise in particular of Islam, both Sunni and Shia uh, within the region, and this sort of, this growing uh, nationalist split and also religious split between the two real ideas of what the Middle East, uh, indeed the wider region, actually was. Kim is a a long-time BBC correspondent, or was a long-time BBC correspondent. Um, She was mainly based in her native Lebanon, uh, covering not just Lebanon, but obviously uh, the wider region. Then she moved to Washington, D.C., where she was covering the State Department. Her previous book was uh, all about Hillary Clinton. Uh, She's a fantastic journalist. um, And the thing that excites me about this book in particular is that we often see these events and these countries through a Western gaze, certainly in the West we do. Uh, And one of the things that she does so well in this book is really tell it from a Middle Eastern perspective. Um, Lots of characters who, even if you think you are familiar with that time and that place, uh, you won't know, or certainly not in this context. Uh, And she does it brilliantly. It's a really fascinating book. Um, And... uh, and we had a really, really good discussion. Uh, she just arrived in London from the US uh, just before coronavirus was sort of stopping people traveling too much. And and yeah, we had a, a really, really fascinating discussion about a book and about uh, the region then, but also uh, about where it's going now and our hopes and fears for the future. Well, not to get too postmodern, but I'm looking forward to listening to it in the future when this comes out. But you, dear listener at home, will get to listen to it now. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've, been, I've been indoors a number of days at, at this point. Um, Shall we crack on with the interview? OK, Seth, thank you very much. Uh, and after this very quick break, you'll hear my discussion with Kim Gattas. Gattas, thank you very much for joining us today. It's great to be here. 
Um, you're from Lebanon originally. Uh, before we talk about the book, tell us a bit about uh, your childhood and your upbringing, because I think that will that will help explain why you, you came to write this book in the first place. I was born in Beirut in 1977, which was two years into the Lebanese civil war. And I spent the first 13 years of my life living in that civil war on the front lines of it, really. We lived uh, right on the crossing point between East and West Beirut in what became a no man's land after the war started. Lots of people left the neighborhood because it was too dangerous to live there. It was also a little bit of a sniper favorite place. Uh, There was a crossing where snipers were positioned. So going to school, that's something that we had to deal with. There were times when we couldn't cross over. There was times there were several times where our own apartment was um, bombed during shelling we had to live in uh, stay in the shelter we had to sleep in the hallway of the house that was the most protected from because of the walls that was the most protected place in in the uh, in the apartment it was uh, it was tough it was tough to say the least but I, I try not to make this a sob story uh, particularly because my family was very privileged to survive And I know no one in our immediate environment, uh, friends or extended family or relatives who was injured or killed, which is a miracle because 150,000 people died in that war. And that's a lot in a country of only three and a half million. So what the war did for me was that it made me want to become a journalist because I felt powerless as a child to do anything, as as children often are the case. We were not actors. My parents were not political. They were not active. They were not. They never joined any parties or militias. And I thought that being a journalist would empower me to tell the story of my country and to tell the story of other people like me who might be living through something like that. And so war made me who I am. And I think I turned out okay. <laughs> And at what stage, when you were growing up, did you begin to understand uh, what was going on? So I was 13 when the war ended, and there's only so much you understand as a child. Um, I could see what was happening around me, and I could feel the injustice of it. I didn't understand why anybody would do what they were doing. I saw a lot, but I didn't understand a lot of it. You know, I saw Israeli soldiers rounding up young men with um, blindfolds and handcuffs in our neighborhood on the street in the morning when I was going to school. We were in the car and we saw the Israeli tank pull up and they pushed people in. We had, our our neighborhood was really, I mean, it was crazy why we stayed there, but it's this sort of um, lack of, of ability to predict how things are going to unfold. You don't know, is it going to get worse or is it going to end soon? Should we stay? Should we move? And if we move, how do we know that where we're going is going to be better? So that's how we ended up staying there until almost the end of the war. You know, we had um, the Palestinian militants in set up headquarters in, in the basement of our building. We had Syrian soldiers set up headquarters in um, it was the sort of the the crossover, the, the the crossing point for all the invading militants and military. I didn't understand the geopolitics of it. I didn't understand what was going on. I just understood that it was incredibly unfair and unjust that this should be happening to to anyone. Most of your is this fair to say? Most of your journalistic career has been at the BBC. Yes. Yeah. Um, what was that like reporting on? Because a, a lot of the reporting you're doing was on you know was on Lebanon, was on the Middle East. What was that like for you to be reporting on your country, your region, for for the rest of the world that often saw things in, in a very black and white way or, or didn't really understand the nuances? It was a huge privilege, 
uh, it was an honor to work for for the BBC. I also wrote for the Financial Times for a while and a Dutch newspaper. Um, I wrote for American newspapers every now and then as well. But yes, the bulk of my career was spent at at the BBC in some form or another, freelance or full time, etc. TV, radio, online. It was why I had become a journalist. I didn't want to become a journalist just to write for a local newspaper in Lebanon. I had become a journalist because I wanted to tell the story of my country and of my region to a wider audience, to precisely bring more nuance to the storytelling, to bring all the voices and the empathy that is required, I think, in in our jobs as journalists to explain the story in its details and its nuance as much as possible to people everywhere so that it can be not just this place over there full of people who don't look like us, but a place that you can relate to. Because the experience of war, the experience of upheaval is actually universal. It's just that for the West, it's been one that belongs to the past, the not so distant past. You know, World War II is still part of, you know, the memory in, of, of, of generations that are still alive today. And uh, it's important to remember that the Middle East is not just this, you know, cesspool of, of hate and tyrants and, and, and terrorists. It is much more than that. And that's why I try as much as possible to bring the stories of people to the foreground. One of the things most striking about your book, reading it, was that I was often reading about things that I had read about before, but not from this perspective. A lot of uh, history, a lot of reporting on the events in Iran and Saudi Arabia and the wider region from 79 onwards have been very much through a Western gaze. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, yeah, go then? on. Then. So what was, what was different? What did you discover that was different from my perspective or, a, or an Arab perspective? How did it change the same event in your view? So I think, for example, if you look at the the 1979 revolution in, in Iran, it, it's a lot of the nuances of who was back in Khomeini, um, how those the people who had been part of that revolution were then sidelined by him afterwards. A lot of that has been written out of, or not necessarily written out, but gets glossed over as if there's, you know, there was the Shah, he was ousted, Khomeini came in, Islamic revolution. And it's quite simple and it's talked about, you know, we know a lot about the, the hostage crisis in, um, in 1980 and 81. Um, but actually, I found I was learning more about, you know, all the politics behind the revolution, which was perhaps not stuff that I'd read in in a in a normal history book. I think that's a great point that you make and it's about adding context to historical events that have been reduced to a sentence of background in a newspaper article. And it's absolutely correct that people forget that the Iranian revolution did not ostensibly start out as an Islamic revolution. It became that because Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini seized that moment and used it to his advantage. He was a very cunning cunning man. And I think that he even even he didn't expect that he could reach that goal because it was a far very far fetched. And so um, part of what I explore in in Black Wave is collective memory and how it is shaped and how it changes over time and how the more you read about certain things from a specific perspective the more it shapes your understanding and erases those nuances. And there's no one to blame for that. It's just how history works sometimes or how the retelling works. But that's why I thought that it was important to to write this book for a Western audience that has forgotten the background to a lot of this, the, the gray in between the black and white, but also for us in the region whose collective memory has been shaped 
so forcefully by the more recent events that are violent and intolerant and that have brought us to where we are today. I want to just go back to talk more broadly about about the book. Um, it's based around this idea that that things began to change in 1979 and that the the Middle East as we see it today is is essentially shaped from from what happened then. What was the region like before 1979, in particular relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia? So before 1979, let, let me just backtrack a sure. little bit to say, you know, obviously 1979 is used as the, I, I see 1979 as the turning point in the region. But of course, nothing happens in a vacuum. It didn't just sort of all suddenly happen in 1979. There was a prelude. There were trend lines that were in place. But 1979 is the year where the trajectory shifts dramatically and things go in a very different direction. Before 1979, Iran and Saudi Arabia, two monarchies, were friends, were uh, allies, competitive, like, you know, two big powers can be in any region. One Shia, Iran, one Sunni, Saudi Arabia, perfectly happy to be, you know, friends and twin pillars in U.S. policy to contain the Soviet Union in in the Arab world. Uh, If they had disputes, if they had uh, issues between each other, they resolved it at a state level. The other thing that was very clear in, in my writing and in my research was the fact that before 1979, you had a much more vibrant, diverse, tolerant, politically vibrant society everywhere. I don't want to simplify this by saying that before 1979, everything was great, and after 1979, everything became black. But there was a shift. There was a shift that happened because of the Iran revolution and the siege of Mecca by Saudi zealots in the same year in 1979, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and how those events combined to unleash ripples that still live with us today. And the key is what you pointed out, which is that Iran and Saudi Arabia, friends before, become rivals after 1979, and they enter this competition to pose as the leader of the Muslim world. They each want to be the leader of the Muslim world. And they start competing on terrain that they never competed on before. And the Saudis feel very challenged in their role as custodians of the two holy mosques in Mecca by Ayatollah Khomeini, who wants to pose as the real righteous leaders of of all Muslims. And so this holier-than-thou competition means that they both deploy religion as a tool to dominate. And that has devastating consequences for culture and society and and people's understanding of of religion. And the ripples echo from Egypt all the way to Pakistan across 40 years and to this day. You say they use religion. How much of of it is down to religion and how much is down to nationalism? Well, it used to be very much about religion and using that as a tool and deploying it everywhere. And that's why you saw the export of the Islamic revolution of Iran to places like Lebanon with the rise of militant groups like Hezbollah, who who espoused the same worldview as Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme leader. Uh, You saw the export of the Iranian style or the Shia conservative a style of black chador, the all-enveloping black cloak. Meanwhile, you saw uh, increasingly the Saudi-style niqab, the face veil, and the Saudi black cloak, the abaya, spread to countries like Egypt, which had never seen this before, spread to countries like Pakistan, where it's 
totally unknown before then. They have the burqa in some places, but not the Saudi-style veil. And so they use religion and religious education and, and religious cultural influence to shift societies, to change societies and make them more like themselves. And they do that within their own country, of course. Iran changes dramatically after 1979. And Saudi Arabia, always a conservative country, becomes an even more conservative country. Forty years later, the young generation of the region is not very interested in religion. And so today, Iran and Saudi Arabia are resorting to nationalism to continue to whip up sentiments and keep people mobilized in both camps. It's interesting what you say about, about young people today, because one of the things that you talk about at the end of your book is, is you know, you spoke to people in, young people in both Iran and Saudi Arabia who were essentially asking their parents' generation the same question, you know, how did you let this happen? Do you... Do you feel a sense of hope about the younger generation that they want to reverse some of the changes that have taken place over the past 40 years? Or, as you just mentioned there, the fact that you know, leaders in both countries are trying to whip up the young by using nationalism. Do you fear what may come next? I'm always hopeful because when I see... You know, the characters, the, the people I profile in Black Wave are, are incredible. They're really incredible. They're not historical figures. They're journalists, novelists, intellectuals, young progressive clerics, te television anchors in Pakistan, you know, dissidents in Syria. They have been fighting back against this dark wave for, for 40 years. They've stood up, they've spoken out, they've sometimes paid with their life, like Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist murdered in a Saudi consulate in Istanbul in 2018. They've had to go into exile because they've been apostatized, like Nasser Abu Zaid in Egypt in the 90s. Um, a leading Islamic scholar and, and Arab literature um, uh, professor who had to go to, to the Netherlands and live there in exile. There has been a great amount of effort uh, by people who are not a minority. These people are not a minority. I think they really represent the majority of people. And But those are the ones who've managed to speak out or try to, at least. And I think that when people in the West ask, where are the moderate Muslims who stand up when there's an act of terror in the UK or in the US? They should remember that they're in those pages of, of Black Wave. They've been trying to stand up against the tyranny of religion and the tyranny of fundamentalism and the tyranny of dictatorship for 40 years in their own country, except they didn't make headlines because sometimes it suits the West to ignore that and instead support the dictators who provide a semblance of stability in countries like Pakistan and, and Egypt. That's a long-winded answer to your question about hope. So it is today a continuation. The protests that we see in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Algeria, in Sudan, and in Iran itself are a continuation of that and a, a culmination maybe of those efforts where the younger generation is really fed up. They don't want sectarian politics. They don't want corruption. They don't want to be soldier, foot soldiers in Iran and Saudi Arabia's wars. Iraqis want to be left alone. They don't want the Iranian stranglehold on their country's politics. And they don't want American interference um, anymore. How do they take this and turn it into a tool to fight back? I actually don't know yet. They're they're out there on the streets. They're fighting back. They are being shot in Iraq. But I don't know how they can dislodge these politicians who are completely oblivious and um, unwilling to consider moving forward. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about Lebanon, which you just mentioned there, and obviously you're from. It's it's interesting, certainly for viewing the protests from here, that they are, unlike some protests in the past, they are cross-class, they're cross-sectarian. Same in Iraq. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah. Cross-class, cross-sectarian, men and women. Uh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, actually, what is happening. And it's a shame that it's not making more headlines. Why, why do you think, and, and you can talk about both or just, or just one or, or one, one then the other, why do you think it's happening in that way now? And what do you think has changed that has made people come together in ways that they hadn't done before? If I look at the last 40 years, what I've noticed with my research is that things seem to move in 10-year periods. Every 10 years, there is something that propels the action forward. You had 1979, the revolution. You know, 88, 89, you had things like the end of the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, the Salman Rushdie fatwa by Khomeini, which launched the culture wars. Then you had, a decade later, you had 9-11, and then a decade later, you had the Arab uprisings. And now a decade later, you have what I think is the end of an era. The ghosts of 1979 are hopefully leaving us. And 40 years later, I think that the dynamics that were unleashed in 1979 are running out of steam. And you have a younger generation that is hyper-connected, hyper-aware, thanks to social media and, and, and other ways of communication, who can see that there is a world out there that is not within their reach. They want the same thing that everybody wants everywhere. They want jobs, they want hope, they want dignity, they want justice. Let's forget about the word democracy. But they want something that is a better future, a hopeful future. And I think they realize that their parents made a huge mistake. And that's why Iranians and Saudis ask the question, how could you let this happen in 1979? Why on earth did you replace the tyranny of the Shah with an even worse religious tyranny that has bankrupted the country economically and, and politically? So I think that what we're seeing is, is a new, the rise of a new generation that wants a different future. But I'm, I'm still not sure how we turn that into a political success for them. No, well, it's interesting. Everything you say there reminds me so much of what young Egyptians were saying in 2011 and 
they thought for, for a moment they did have success and then the counter-revolution was stronger. Counter-revolution was stronger, but also, if I may, I think young Egyptian protesters were too idealistic. They were naive in their belief that all they needed to do was bring down the dictator. And I remember distinctly that in the wake of Mubarak's fall, many of these young uh, revolutionaries said that they didn't do politics. They were not going to run for elections. Well, if you don't run for elections, if you're not part of the movement to build the country forward, then you're leaving the space to to the others. And that was the Muslim Brotherhood, and that was the army, and the so-called deep state. And it's interesting also because the story of Egypt after the fall of Hosni Mubarak is also impacted by the rivalry between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, because both countries saw an opportunity in what was happening Uh, Well, the Saudis saw a threat and the Iranians saw an opportunity. The Iranians saw an opportunity to um, bring Egypt into their camp, something which they had hoped would happen after 1979, but didn't happen even after the assassination of Anwar Sadat. Uh, That did not bring about an Islamic revolution, which is what his assassins had hoped. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the current Supreme Leader, described the events in Egypt in 2011 as an Islamic awakening. Well, I can tell you that the Saudis were very scared about that. They thought they saw this as a, as a threat. They were worried that Egypt would turn into an Islamic republic as well, just as Iran had done in 1979. They were key in thwarting uh, the, 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 the normal progression of what was happening in, in Egypt and bringing about the rise of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. They were instrumental in making that happen, the Saudis with the Emiratis. Um, just going back to Iran and Saudi Arabia and, and whether things change and how they might, um, if you'd been writing this book maybe two years ago, I don't know whether you would believe this, but it could have been possible to say, well, if you look at what's happening in Iran, uh, you know, there are there are protests. Obviously, there's protests now as well in a slightly different way. Um, but there is there's a possibility of the sense of change in Saudi Arabia. You've got more of a top down change with a, a new with, with a lot of caveats. Yes, in, indeed. Do you think either of those so the, the bottom up from Iran or the top down from Saudi Arabia have shown to have failed? So the top down in Saudi Arabia is a very particular model that delivers only limited uh, social, cultural change, but stifles debate, imprisons women, um, and instills fear in a lot of uh, the country's uh, citizens. The top-down model that Mohammed bin Salman is trying to put forward as the way to go ahead Uh, has come at a huge cost also for for a lot of people in the kingdom. I mean, fear is not the way to modernize a society. I think that what Mohammed bin Salman is doing is a bit of smoke and and mirrors, making entertainment available for people. And that's not necessarily enough for, for many Saudis. You know, unemployment is not improving. The sense of being stifled in your ability to express yourself is something that is going to cause problems later on. And I think calling it a top-down, or as, as some people have called it, a top-down revolution towards towards better change is, is, is a bit of an insult to um, all the people who have tried real revolution on the ground and fighting really against the forces of change. In Iran, I don't think that story is over yet. I think the protests continue. And I think the Iranians could be successful in slowly chipping away 
at the stranglehold that the regime has on everything in, in, in the country. We'll, we'll have to see. With Mohammed bin Salman in, in Saudi Arabia, do you think that those superficial changes he, he brought in or, or said he was going to bring in, do you think it was PR that Western leaders genuinely believed? Or do you think it was PR that Western leaders thought, well, this at least gives the veneer of something and we can just we can carry on dealing with Saudi Arabia as we always have because financially it makes sense for us? A bit of both. A bit of both. I think, you know, Mohammed bin Salman was very appealing to, to a lot of people as he posed as this modernizer, reformer, described by some as, you know, liberal. But let me be a little bit more fair in, in my description of, of what he has done. It's not only superficial because some changes are fundamental, like allowing women to drive. That's huge. Uh, like curbing the powers of the religious police. That is also uh, huge. Uh, introducing, you know, cinemas and all of that, those are seismic shifts for a country that has been so closed up for the last 40 years. But again, it's it's not enough. If the price to pay for a bit of entertainment and a bit of freedom is here and is a, a state that is turning into more of a dictatorship with with a ruler who's concentrating all power in his hands. So... I think, actually, the West would probably have continued to deal with Saudi Arabia, regardless of whether Mohammed bin Salman was introducing these changes or not, because that is just the the reality of international relations and um, the power of oil. You mentioned the power of oil. It is at some stage going to run out. Um, do you foresee a moment where, where Western nations in particular begin to reassess their relationship with Saudi Arabia as it becomes strategically less economically important? That's been the evergreen headline of the last 30 years. Reassess, um, move away from the Middle East. Uh, but it's true that something is shifting because the United States actually doesn't depend anymore on, on Saudi oil the way it used to do. It is, you know, if I'm not mistaken, the number one or number two producer in, in the world, and it has huge reserves. And yet... Donald Trump seems to think that Mohammed bin Salman can do no wrongs, even when his people um, murder a Saudi journalist inside the, the consulate of, uh, of Saudi Arabia in, in Istanbul. Um, I, I, I think change happens very slowly and then all of a sudden. That's why at the beginning of our conversation, I said that 1979 was not the year when suddenly these things happen out of nowhere but were the sudden explosion of trends that had been slowly cooking over in the prior um, decade or two decades or so. So where do we go from here? I don't know. Call me in 40 years. I'll tell you the story of, the, <laughs> of, of what happened. <laughs> Kim Gattas, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks a lot for this great conversation. us here this week from our two locations uh, across London. Thank you very much for joining us on the Prospects interview. Don't forget you can buy Kim Gass's book Black Wave, uh, probably not from a bookshop at the moment, but I'm sure you can get it online. Uh, please do, it really is worth your time. We'll see you again next week. In the meantime, of course, please do browse our paywall-free websites uh, for all the writing on ideas that matter 
politics, culture and society. If you enjoyed the Prospect interview, please do leave us a rating and a review on whatever platform you are listening to this on. It really does help other listeners find us. My name is Steve Bluefield. Goodbye. Stay safe. See you next week.